Well, I was a bit sad doing sermon prep this week. I'm not usually sad doing sermon prep, but I was a bit sad in realizing this is our last week in Acts. I've, I've kind of, Acts has become kind of an old friend, and is, uh, as much as I love the lectionary and I'm thrilled for uh, the Feast of Christ the King next week and then the beginning of Advent, it still just feels a little sad to be, to be done with this uh, fantastic story we've been reading in Acts. As we've been reading it, we've been asking the question, how is it that similar to as the Holy Spirit did in the first church, create the Jesus life in them, how is it that we might pay attention to this text and place our, ourselves before it such that it might produce in us the Jesus life as well through the power of the Holy Spirit? In the readings we saw this morning from Acts, we see that, they, that for Paul at least, uh, they center on the gospel of the kingdom of God and of, as the text said, all things about Jesus. And I think what Paul's getting at here, what Paul's really aiming at is the ordering of these people's desires. Uh, when we think about human life, because I'm gonna say a bit about desire this morning, so I, I need to say this as sort of a preface. When we think about human desires, it's not that desire itself is the issue. We cannot be human without desire. I mean, desire, loving, passion, those kinds of things are just, they're part and parcel of being human. So we're not Buddhists. We're, we're never gonna get rid of desire. We're not trying to get rid of desire. Uh, in the Christian worldview, desire is something that just needs to be ordered rightly. It's when desires get disordered that we have an issue with desire, but to not desire itself. Because we cannot not love or desire. The question is not whether or not we will love or desire, but what we will love and desire. And it's clear that as we come to the end of Acts here, that what Paul's been working for, what Paul's been preaching for, what Paul's been praying for is a people who would love and desire God and his kingdom, or we might say Jesus and his kingdom and all things about the kingdom of God. That what Paul's been trying to do is tune his hearer's radar to Jesus and his agenda. Now, I think the big thing I want you to leave the book of Acts with here this morning is this that we as humans are not primarily thinking machines. And I think that that's often the way we conceive of ourselves, that primarily what we are are people who think. But if you stop to consider it for a moment, think of something like a famous play like The Lion King or Macbeth or something. When you think about those things, the best way to access those, the best thing to comprehend them and value them is not by reading the script. The best way to value them is for them to be performed. They're to be acted out. And Paul knows this. He knows that we're not just thinking people, but we're desiring and we're worshiping people. That what defines us is not what we think, but the affections, the internal desires that orient our way of being and acting in the world without thinking. When we talk about orienting our desires, we're talking about those things that are prompted within us automatically without thinking the ways that we're sort of postured or positioned inside to act, sort of precognition without having thought about it. I think it would do us good to remember this sort of big idea that when it comes to actually living human life, we don't tend to be pushed by doctrinal ideas. We tend to be pulled by human desires. When it comes to how we actually act in all things human, we don't tend to be pushed by doctrinal ideas that sit in our memory, in some sort of gray matter in our memory. 
We tend to be pulled into action moment by moment, day in and day out, by desires that reside within us. Jesus, of course, knew this to be true. He knew that it was from our hearts, from our loves and our desires that come our intentions and our actions and our words, that we live from the heart, not from the head alone, that we really live from hopes and passions and, and, and what I would call the vision of the good life. There's a lot of gospels out there about what the good human life is, and everyone sitting in this room has a vision of the good life. Uh, for you, it might be health right now. It might be that you wouldn't be behind on mortgage payments. It, you know, who knows? It could be that you could find a job or a better job or that you wouldn't be underemployed. I mean, all of us carry around in us sort of fundamentally a vision of the good life. And Jesus knows that this comes from passions, from desires that are inside us pre-thinking. Before we think about them and consider them, they are inside of us and causing us to act from them. These hopes, passions, and visions of the good life. If you think about it, um, an author I was reading this week said something I thought was very important for what we're talking about here this morning, that if you, if you look at the way most Christian discipleship works, I mean, especially for my life, and maybe it's for me, you know, growing up in sort of a mainstream evangelical world, but if you look at most of the approaches to discipleship, you would think that the people who write these curriculums believe that this is true, that if we just pour enough water on our head, we'll put out a fire that exists in our heart, and that cannot be true. It is not enough to just pour more and more data into our heads, even when this data is good and true and right and biblical and has theological precision attached to it. That's all good. But pouring more and more water on our head does not rearrange the fundamental desires of our heart, and it's from there that we act. Because most of us act before thinking. Just think, if you, one, one little story in the Bible. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if everyone else abandons you, I won't. I swear, I promise. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, you know? Like, I promise, Lord, I will not abandon you. And as soon as he's confronted, before he can think, his little legs start running away. Because fear was embodied in him before he could think. As soon as he thought about it, he repented and said, Lord, I'm sorry. But before he could think, he acted out of what was true within him. So as we leave Acts and having spent now 22 weeks asking, you know, God, how is it that, that the Holy Spirit could create the Jesus life in us? What if we thought something like this? What if in cooperation with Jesus and Paul and what we've been reading in Acts, we just had this thought that Christian formation includes the transformation of our imaginations and that it includes the renewal of our bodily desires. What if we thought this, that Christian formation is focused as much on what we love as much as what we know? I don't think when Paul sat with his door open talking to everybody who would listen about the kingdom of God and all things about Jesus Christ, I don't think he was doing Bible studies on Ephesians the way we think of it. You know what I mean? He wouldn't have had a little scroll and said, now everybody get out your scroll of Ephesians and it wouldn't have existed for him. What Paul was trying to do is say, look, if you want to know what's ordering my life, if you want to get what animates me, if you want to get what causes me to risk my life over and over again and to be at peace in trials, if you want to know what really is going on fundamentally in me, it's because I love. That is to say, I've ordered my desires around Jesus and his kingdom. 
And it's from this then that I'm sort of organically and naturally and peacefully able to act. This uh, same book I was reading this week, James Smith's Desiring the Kingdom, he tells the story of a, of a British boy was a man now, but he was recounting his boyhood. He says, when I was 14 or 15, I was an odious little snob, but no worse than other boys of my own age in class. He says, I suppose there's no place in the world where snobbery is quite so ever-present or where it is cultivated in such refined and subtle forms as in an English public school. Now, if you know England, public means the reverse of what we think of. We, we say private schools when we try to think of snooty schools. In England, they're called public schools. So here, at least, he says, one cannot say that English education does not do its job. You forget your Latin or Greek within a few months of leaving school. He says, I studied Greek for eight or 10 years, and now at 33, I cannot even repeat the Greek alphabet. But your snobbishness, unless you persistently root it out like the weed that it is, sticks with you until the grave. It wasn't fundamentally what he learned in public school, what we would think of as a high-class private school. It wasn't the Latin or the Greek. It was the atmosphere, the ethos, the zeitgeist, the feel, the vibe that he picked up in the atmosphere, and it somehow got inside of him. And where thinking let him down, that stuck with him forever. A way of being grabbed him a way of orienting himself in his world. Can you hear that? I mean, I've, 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 I've worked a lot in my career in London, in all parts of England. I've been there, I've lost count of how many times I've been to England. And, and I've worked with English people for many, many years. And there are certain people who when they just walk into a room, they walk into a room with a worldview in their head. And you can just tell. It's like I was born to rule. Seriously. <laughs> I'm, I'm being dead serious. I love English people. I'm not being mean. But it's totally true. It's almost like this birthright. And if they grew up in a public school, it's enforced in them. Like, you exist for the public good, to rule and to reign and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that just walks in with them. It, it transforms in, in our, our atmospheres. They create in us a visceral orientation to our lives. That's what that story teaches us. That the basic orientation to our life is not, first of all, thoughtful. It's, first of all, visceral. So the places and spaces of our lives form us too. Malls, workplaces, roads, theaters, stadiums. None of these places are value-free. They all have a worldview. They all actually preach a gospel. And most of them, the gospel they preach to us is this. And you gotta think whether or not you accept this. I mean, like really accept this. You're a producer or a consumer. That's basically what you are. That's the gospel of almost all the atmospheres of our lives. Malls, workplaces, roads, theaters, stadiums, whatever. They basically say to us, you're one of two things. You're a producer of goods or you're a consumer of goods. We almost have no way of thinking about being human apart from that anymore today. That, you know, our, our way out of everything. Remember, even our way out of 9-11 was go out and buy things. And again, I'm not putting... George Bush down. I get what he was saying. But I, what I want you to think about is this. Let's take one space that's easy, like a mall. Just picture yourself walking into South Coast Plaza or the Brea Mall or whatever your thing is. Um, picture yourself walking in there and ask yourself, does the sort of the vibe of that mall aim at your head or your heart? 
For a guy, can I just say that Victoria's Secret doesn't really appeal to my head? And maybe for you ladies, the, you know, the Calvin Klein underwear ads, you know, maybe they don't appeal to your head, but to something a little more visceral. And what they're basically saying is preaching a gospel of the good life. I hate it always when they take my head off and use my body for somebody else. I hate it when they do that. Because, you know, that's, you know, right? That's, the, that, that's like the vision of the good life. Like if I could just be 24 again and have that body, you know, that is the gospel of a really good life. Well, my brother Dennis, who you, who you all know, who speaks occasionally, we were talking one day, and he, he told me about this uh, exercise he does with one of his classes, I don't know which. So in my class here that I teach on Thursday nights in evangelism, I picked up Dennis's idea. And what I've done, I don't see any of my students here this morning, but maybe there are and I just can't see, is I gave them an assignment they could do if they wanted extra credit. Come visit our church and listen to the liturgy of this church and the gospel that it proclaims. And then go to South Coast Plaza and pay attention to the liturgy that it proclaims. And tell me the gospels that you're hearing and, and what are the visions of the good life based on what happens here and based on what you see happening at the mall. And it's fascinating to hear what these students say back and what they hear of these gospels. So as desiring beings, we need places of counterformation. We need identity-forming practices that teach us to desire Jesus in his kingdom. And this, of course, is what church and liturgy and sacrament and the daily offices of, you know, morning and evening prayer and all that, this is what they're designed to do. They're not to be legalistic. They're not to make you more religious even in that sense. What they're designed to do is just put you in them because these practices of church, of liturgy, of sacrament, of daily offices, they have embedded in them an alternative vision of the good life. And we could just stop right now and based on what Michael led us in worship this morning, there was a vision of life in there. And it, it has sort of this counterforming influence in our life. It tells us what the good life really is. I want you all to catch this in case you're uh, drifting a bit here. Look me in the eye. You've got to catch this. When Jesus in the upper room broke bread, he did not look out the window with, you know, a kind of spacey, airheady look and go, behold, this is creation, and you might want to sort of hang on to it when you feel bad. No, he said something very particular. This is my body broken for you. Very particular. This is the vision of the good life, he was saying. Not some airy, mystical, abstract sort of thing, but something very concrete, something very embodied, something very precise. This is my body. And every week when we come together, that one little sentence just reminds us that this is the vision of the good life. Life in the kingdom of God, life in Jesus, this is the vision of the good life. No matter what space we happen to find ourselves in, there's nothing wrong with malls, nothing wrong with roads or stadiums or arenas or your place of work. It's just that how do you orient yourself in them? And the way you orient yourself in them without even thinking about it is your actual vision of the good life. Consider this, you don't think about tying your shoes. You probably don't think about how to drive to school or work or how to read a document. You're simply occupied with living in the world. 
And what Paul's shooting for is he sits with his door open, telling everybody he can about Jesus and his kingdom. What he's shooting for is that we have a kind of just occupying in the world through Jesus and his kingdom, that we would find our sort of basic point of orientation in those ways, Jesus and his kingdom. Well, if you like stories, you probably got to the end of Book of Acts, especially if you've been reading with us the passages online, you probably got to the end of Acts and said, well, what happened? This story doesn't end in a very satisfying way. You know, Paul's door was open. Well, like, did he ever make it to Rome? You know, what happened to him? And the way Acts ends, you know, I mean, scholars think about these kinds of things, and there's lots of notions about why it ends the way it does. The one I've always liked is, is that Acts 28 isn't the end of the story, that it's meant to just leave this story going in an Acts 29 sort of way that says to us, the end of Paul's journey is the beginning of ours. And having asked Jesus, the Jesus life, to be created in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, our next step is not to close the book on Acts and pick up the lectionary again next week. Our next step is to say, how do we now live into this story that Paul's been telling and living in? What do we do next? And like the Jews to whom Paul is speaking, our, his story, this story, invites our decision. It invites, it invites a decision to us to enter this story and to make a commitment to it. As the psalmist said this morning, standing in awe, I seek. I turn to God. So the way Acts 28 ends, the way the book of Acts ends, is an invitation to every person to join the story, to get in on God's kingdom agenda. But our text said this morning that some of Paul's hearers, they were persuaded by what he said, but others refused to believe. I'm sorry there was a, a little typo in the gospel reading this morning, so, so let me read it to you again. Because as we close now this study on Acts, I want you to hear Jesus' words. And again, you just have to think of Jesus as smart, not just smart, brilliant. And that these um, parables are not, again, just sort of wispy, airy little thoughts. These are very concrete things designed to help people clarify their own desires, their own intentional, in, internal orientation to the world. When he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which a man found, covered up the treasure, then went with joy, sold all he had, and came back and bought that field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one great pearl, the pearl of great value or the pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had. He went and leveraged all his other holdings and pearls to come back and buy that one great pearl. Well, these parables... They work exactly in alignment with what it is that Paul was trying to do to help people love from this deep inward place of our fundamental human desires to love Jesus and his kingdom. And so these parables of Jesus were designed to help clarify the intention and desires of Jesus' hearers. They were designed to help them answer these questions. To what are you fundamentally oriented? What actually governs your vision of the good life? What do you desire above all else? What decisive desire shapes, positions, and makes sense of all your secondary desires? And of course, Paul's view is when Jesus and his kingdom agenda lead us to rightly organize the various aspects of our lives, it's then that we will know that our loves and desires are aimed in the right direction. 
So as we come to our quiet time this morning, you might just think with me, are we misaimed somewhere this morning? Is there some part of our system of desire that's misaimed? Is there something that you're tempted to value more than Jesus and his kingdom? Is there a pearl in your life worth more than Jesus and his kingdom? And for the last time in this study in Acts, we get to say, Holy Spirit, create the Jesus life in me. Amen.